0: We are, this morning, back in John chapter 1, of course. Have you ever missed a moment where, you know, one of those instances when someone said, look, and you turned too late, and you missed whatever it was that, that they were pointing out, shooting star, infant smile, something that just, you just missed. You didn't turn around or look up fast enough to see it, missed the moment. Maybe you uh, got up a little too late during your stay at the beach and you missed the sunrise that morning that others saw and are telling you how glorious it was and you wished you'd gotten up just a little earlier. You just missed it. There are moments like that, I think, in the life of Jesus Christ, moments that we will be, are reading about and will be reading about in the Gospel of John where John is telling us a story, giving us a scene from the life of Christ that is perhaps familiar. It has a sort of familiar feel to it. We've seen it before. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've read through some of the Gospels, no doubt. And and, and so as you come through some of these narrations of the life of Christ, then maybe it's things we've read before or things that seem sort of ordinary at the time. And, and yet we may, in those times, be missing a moment, may may just be missing Another glimpse of the glory and grace and greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's not just unbelievers who need to read the Gospel of John. Certainly John set that out in his purpose statement that these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life. Certainly it's an appeal to the world To look at Jesus Christ and to see his life. But we as believers should be rehearsing these things ourselves, meditating on what John says about Jesus Christ and and thinking on how those things impact our lives and where our lives would be without him, where we would be in the world apart from Jesus Christ. And we need to to pause to marvel at him and read about how gracious, how he uh, draws people into communion and fellowship and gives to them great promises, as we're going to see this morning. So John chapter 1, the passage we're looking at, starts in verse 35. Depending on your translation of the Bible, it may have a heading that says, Jesus calls his first disciples, or Jesus begins his public ministry. It's one of those headings that sounds a little benign, kind of ordinary, just sort of, a, you know, Jesus is doing this. Uh, and, and that's what I want to encourage you to see, that there is much more here in these last 17 verses of John chapter 1. I think John is giving us almost a microcosm for his book, almost just a a shortened version of everything that he's about to do as he introduces to us this first encounter of Jesus Christ with those who are following him. It is the same Uh, beginning here, unfolding of of sort of stories and accounts of Christ's life that he will do in a much larger way throughout the course of the book. And and this section clearly is meant to begin to give us a glimpse, to begin to reveal to us some of the greatness and glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is beginning to, to bring this to us through this passage. And I think to leave us, ideally, feeling a little like those first followers, those first disciples who are beginning to be in awe because they are beginning to understand that they are encountering someone who is unique, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah. And they are just beginning to get a glimpse of how amazing and wonderful he is. And so when we start here in verse 35... It is that point, uh, at least the starting point of that transition that we previewed last week from John the Baptist to Jesus. This is sort of that, that beginning of that turning point where those who have been following and listening to John the Baptist teach, John has been preparing them, has been pointing them toward Christ, has been moving them in a direction to see Jesus, and now it's, it's almost as if the handoff is taking place as the followers of John now begin to move toward Jesus Christ, and the emphasis and the focus of the book and of the crowds all begins to shift. Much as John himself, we saw it in John chapter 3, much as he understood, he must become less, Jesus must become greater. And that's taking place here as we begin reading. I'm going to read 35 down through 42 just to get us started. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. We'll stop there. There's John the Baptist, who has been teaching these followers, his own disciples, as in a rabbi-disciple relationship, he's been teaching them, and two disciples, Andrew and an unnamed disciple at this point. Presumably that unnamed disciple is John, the writer of the Gospel John, is the Apostle John. As we saw in the introduction, John has a tendency to uh, clearly keeping his own name out of this book. There is no reference to him in this book other than the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this would seem to be another one of those instances where, where John is hoping to very much stay in the background, and yet be very clear that he is giving to us eyewitness testimony that he is one who has seen these things and is writing from his own experience. And as Jesus walks by, John the Baptist says that to these two that that have been under his tutelage, look the lamb of God as he points to Jesus, and those two begin to follow Jesus. And he turns to them. Jesus says, "What are you seeking?" Interesting question. Doesn't say who are you seeking? They clearly already understood who he was in terms of identity. Uh, They already had heard from John the Baptist teaching enough to know who it was they were following. And so the question is, what is it you want? What are you seeking? And from what we can tell here, there is something of a lengthy conversation that goes on, because when he goes on to say it was about the 10th hour, that would be, by, by generally by our reckoning of the, the way time is given throughout the New Testament, it's probably four in the afternoon, 10th hour um, of the daylight, if you will, from 6 a.m. on down to 4 p.m. And so it's roughly late afternoon at this point. And this conversation has had a dramatic effect on Andrew to the point that he now goes to get his brother, Simon Peter, and and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. This is the one that we have longed for. And he goes to seek him. And in fact, there's some sense here where um, when he, verse 41, when John writes, he first found his own brother, Simon, The implication of that is probably, if this is John, and again we're conjecturing a little at this point, but if this is John the apostle writing this, no doubt he went and found his brother James and and said much the same thing, but it is Andrew who is reported as first finding Peter and saying we have found the Messiah. So we have at least three followers now, the unnamed disciple Andrew and Peter. Let me read the next section and we'll come back and we'll pick some things out of this and go back through it. But verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. couple things just in terms of understanding the the scene a little bit better. John uses that phrase the next day several times in order to establish kind of a chronology, to build a chronology. And so at the beginning of verse 29, verse 35, verse 43, they all start with the next day. When we move to chapter 2 next week, then it's on the third day. And then there's that that time stamp that we talked about in verse uh, 39 when it talks about the 10th hour. It, it, It would seem like presumably one of the reasons John is doing this is because he is the the last one to pen a gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He is long decades after the others, and and what John is really doing is putting some credibility to his eyewitness testimony by, by pointing out little bits of facts that nobody could know unless they actually saw it. This happened the next day, and then sequentially, this was the next day, and this is what happened. And so John's giving us a diary of sorts, but also very much building some credibility in terms of his account to his readers. And so this next day, the one that begins in verse 43, now adds two more men, Philip and Nathaniel, to those who follow after Jesus. Philip's name we will see throughout the Gospels on the lists of 12 disciples— Seems to be one of the, the, the 12 as he's identified. Nathanael's name is only found here. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has risen, Nathanael of Cana is there as one who sees the resurrected Jesus. And so is not listed amongst the 12, although there are some commentators who argue that perhaps Matthew, Mark, and Luke also use the name Bartholomew to mention him because we don't find Bartholomew in the Gospel of John. So maybe it's an alternate name. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that Nathanael is embracing Christ. He is a follower of Christ, one of the earliest, and he is there after the death and resurrection of Christ. So whether he is one of the specific 12, he is clearly one who follows the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here, though, is what I want us to focus on as we go back through this, and that is to watch what Jesus says and does, and, and, and to just watch this interaction with them and see what we can learn about it, because I think John is really, there, there are things in this opening introduction that John is, is going to unfold throughout the rest of his book that he is just introducing here about what we need to know about Jesus. The things unveiled here that are important to us, starting with Jesus inviting people. This is one of the things we will see throughout the Gospel of John, is the invitational nature of Jesus, which carries from the invitational nature of God, come, come to me, the call to come. And we see this invitation here. The first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel are after the what are you seeking then, um, his first recorded words then are that, that, that sort of call, that come and see. What are you seeking? Come and see. He begins with an invitation. What is it that you are, are, are pursuing? What are you trying to find here? Come and see, what is it that you want to know? One scholar writes this about that first question, that what are you seeking? This first word spoken by Jesus in John's gospel is a master question. It bids them look searchingly at their inmost longings and desires. A hidden promise lies in the question, what are you seeking? Jesus has the highest treasure any man can seek and longs to direct our seeking toward that treasure in order that he may bestow it for our everlasting enrichment, We know that these guys have already been told by John the Baptist, the thing you need to know about Jesus is he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, you need to know Jesus because he is here to do what no one else can do, what only the sacrifices have pointed to, but which can only be fulfilled in him. And so they, now following Jesus, are seeking more than just the person More than just a knowledge of the person, they indeed, as Jesus invites them, what are you seeking? They are looking for something from Jesus that only he can provide. And his response is to invite them. First, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, and he invites them to come and see. Let's talk. Let's sit down together and let's spend time together. He invites Philip, we saw in verse 43, follow me. Nathaniel, he invites by way of engaging him in a conversation. Nathaniel, the the skeptic, the sort of doubter, the one who raises that initial comment of, hey, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That, that, That line, probably Nathaniel being from a neighboring town, Cana, is probably for us, the best way for us to understand that is, go back to when you were in high school and whatever the rivalry town was that you had in high school. Where I grew up in Clifton, New Jersey, it was Passaic. We were going to beat Passaic, and and we kind of looked down on Passaic, you know, because we were Clifton. You guys can fill in whatever town it is. Can any good thing come out of that town? Nah. And that's his attitude at that point. And, And so Jesus yet engages him. Here comes the skeptic. Here comes the doubter. And Jesus says, ah, man without deceit, guy who speaks what's on his mind wait, how do you know me? And Jesus begins to speak to him and and, and invite him and engage him in conversation. That changes his life. And he does this throughout the Gospel of John. We see Jesus again and again, the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus. Jesus offers to him to be born again, to be set free from the condemnation of sin. To the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus invites her to water that gives life, to water that satisfies forever. He extends that invitation to her in the midst of her sinfulness, he offers to her life. To a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? To an unbelieving crowd... Jesus offers food that endures to eternal life. And he says to that crowd, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again and again, John is going to show us Jesus inviting all the way to the point after his resurrection when one disciple who had not seen Jesus immediately after the resurrection finally does and is doubting. Thomas is just not sure, can, can this really be a risen, living Jesus Christ? And what does Jesus say? Come, see my hands. Put your hand by my side. You'll see the wounds come. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. Again and again, Jesus invites. He invites you and I. In Matthew chapter 11, we see that same invitation when Jesus Christ calls you and I to come to him and to take his yoke, for he is gentle and humble and will give rest to the weary, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come, he says. Take what I offer you. I've come to give you life. John 10. In fact, take a look at John 10 just a moment. Flip over to John 10. He's he's portraying himself as the door to the sheepfold, to the pen where the sheep are. In John chapter 10 verse 7 Jesus again said to them, "Truly, truly, meaning solemn, listen, pay attention, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. to to a life that only he can give, an abundant, joyful life that only he can give. And through salvation, we are joined to Jesus Christ. We are brought into the body of Christ. And the New Testament continues to portray us as in Christ and enjoying all of the benefits of union with Christ, walking in him. So the question by way of application is, how do you respond to the frequent invitations from Jesus to come? and to find rest, and to find strength? Are you looking for Jesus for abundant life in the midst of the course of the busy day of the week? Are you looking for Jesus for strength in the middle of the daily grind? Are you looking for Jesus and for peace when you're in the valley? Are you finding grace and strength and hope? Because he is repeatedly throughout the New Testament inviting us to these things. Think of the, the times when you have offered a gift or offered to help offered to want to do something for someone, and, and they just they had an excuse, they had a reason they didn 't they didn't want to be in, in somehow in response to you they didn 't want to have to be you know, in need or have to pay back and, or whatever it was they just they didn 't want it, and they just kept turning you down when you were offering, and you were genuinely wanting to help or give a gift. We do that as believers when we are not fully convinced of how desperately we need Jesus Christ, how desperately we need to rely on him and cry out to him and rest in him and appreciate the union that we have in him. We try to press on carrying our own yoke and then wondering why life feels so hard when Jesus stands as he does and and begins here by inviting. Come. Come and see. Let's talk join into fellowship. The invitation then extends to what is the second point, which is Jesus communes. Not only does he invite the disciples, it's not just an invitation. Well, see what happens, come along. But it's, it's an invitation to communion. The, the picture there at the beginning part of that story with Andrew and the unnamed disciple is that there, there's probably a meeting over a course of several hours. It would seem to be that the marking of the 10th hour seems to indicate some level of lengthy conversation. that that Jesus invited them to. There was interaction and dialogue. Think about that. The Son of God, the King of the universe, says, you want to talk? Let's talk. How often does that happen with people who are higher in authority or higher in power than you? How often do they just gladly say, let me clear things out here, come on in, have a seat, and let's talk. And, and here is the Son of God who sits down and talks with these two men and, and answers their questions and clearly leads them to a place where at the end of that conversation, Andrew is going to his brother and saying, you're not going to believe this, but we have found the Messiah. He has communed with them. No doubt Andrew still had a, a ways to go when he says we found the Messiah in fully understanding all that meant. But he did know what John the Baptist had taught them. He did know some of the Old Testament background of of what a Messiah was. And so at this point, Andrew is beginning to see Jesus as Savior. He is beginning to understand who this Jesus is. The the same Jesus that we we were reading the memory verses about in John chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Same thing we read in John chapter 10. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And that's who Andrew's beginning to understand. He's beginning to see that this is the one who has come to rescue him. And that communion, that conversation begins to move Andrew to understanding. And that kind of communion occurs again when he interacts with Nathanael. Nathanael comes across as this straight shooting skeptic and Jesus' first comment to him is, look, an Israelite within whom there is no deceit. In other words, with Nathanael, it is what you see is what you get. If it's on his mind, he is going to tell you. He's not going to try to cover it up in any way and say it all nice and pretty. He's just going to tell you what he thinks, which is, oh, come on, somebody from Nazareth this can't be the one. And Jesus meets the skeptic and essentially says to him, Listen, I know you're a skeptic, so let me give you something here to think about. You remember when when Philip went for you, when you were far off, you were sitting under a fig tree, and I saw you. And Nathaniel's thinking, wait a minute, how can that be? There was no one, no one was there. No one saw me at that point. Maybe Nathaniel was meditating on the Old Testament at that point. But, but Jesus engages and communes with him and says, Nathanael, I saw you. And suddenly Nathanael's response now is to just be overwhelmed and, and to understand that he is standing in the presence of omniscience at this point, and he begins to worship. Jesus met Nathanael where he was and began to commune with him and to interact with him. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see this one story after another. Jesus communing with people, speaking to them, meeting them where they are, talking to them about what they think they need, and helping them to see that what they need is life from him and salvation. And that that communion and, and that fellowship is so pivotal that by the time we get to the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 13, Jesus is beginning to, and I shouldn't say beginning, but he's already preparing his disciples for what's about to come, which he's been telling them, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I will be crucified. And, and I will rise again in three days. Obviously, they don't clearly get all that, but he's been preparing them for going away. So much so that in John 13, he says, I am going away and where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter speaks for the group and says, Lord, why can't we follow you now? Certainly you can imagine in their minds, after having walked and talked with Jesus, after having communed and fellowshiped with Jesus, having enjoyed the intimacy of that relationship with Jesus, and now Jesus is saying, I'm going away, and you can't go where I'm going. And Peter's like the desperate child that speaks for the group and says, you can't leave us we, we got to go with you. It doesn't work that way. Jesus goes on in John 14 and he says in John 14 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. If you are the disciples, you cannot imagine a worst case scenario at this point. Not only does Jesus say, I'm going, you can't come with me. I won't be talking to you much like, like we've been. And in fact, there is um, Satan is is coming and, and he is going to apply some pressure on you all the more reason for the disciples to think you've got to be here you've got to be close and yet Jesus is going away which when Jesus says to his disciples then in John 16 makes perfect sense he says in verse 6 because I have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart of course it did because they couldn't possibly imagine how do you go through life now from here on out without walking and talking with Jesus without communing every day with Jesus how do you face trials and temptations apart from him but then he says in John 16:7 a verse later he says nevertheless i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that i go away wait <laughs> what how, how does that work Jesus we have had the best deal of all. We have walked with you and seen you and listened to you and you've taught us and you've answered our questions and now you're saying you going away is even better? And he goes on and explains that in the rest of that verse. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus had just begun in the context of this conversation to describe to them the coming of this helper. That when he went, the Holy Spirit would come. God would come and would be in them and with them. That now God himself would come and would dwell in them and abide with them. And Jesus explained, he will teach you and he will comfort you. And he said, the spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you as the spirit works in you He will be speaking my words. So it'll be just like I'm right here with you, only better. Because the fellowship and the communion will be even closer than it is now. Because now, it's not like I'm I'm over here with Peter, James, and John, and I'm not over there with these guys, but actually when it comes to, to this time, I will be with you all so that I will be with believers in Lorton, in Woodbridge, in Springfield, and around the world at the same time, as we celebrated communion this morning, one of the things we're celebrating is both our unity together as brothers and sisters joined together in the body of Christ, but even beyond that, our union with Christ. We eat that bread and drink that cup as a symbol of our communion with him, that we are joined with him. As we read John's gospel and see Jesus having these remarkable conversations, God's word reminds us that we have it even better. We look at him and we think, must be nice, you know, to be in that crowd for the feeding of the 5,000. Must have been amazing to see all these things. And maybe that would really transform my life if I had seen that. And yet, Here's John writing this to us. And John had the before and the after. John knew what it was like to stand there with the 12 and go, wait a minute, you can't leave us. And John also knew what it was like then to have the Holy Spirit. And John is able to write us and to comfort us and to remind us of the communion that we have. And so as he's communing here, so he has said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. We celebrate that. We have great joy because of our communion. Jesus invites, he communes, he fulfills. Third, both Andrew and Philip have these extraordinary testimonies about Jesus Christ in that they have begun to understand from the reading of the Old Testament the expectation of a coming Messiah, the expectation of a deliverer, Savior. And and so it is Andrew who says it first, he's the Messiah, and it is Philip then who elaborates on that point when he goes to Nathanael and he says in verse 45, we found the one who Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote about. The, the promises that start back in the Old Testament of this Messiah, we found him. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop in the 18th century in England, wrote this. He said, to Christ, the earliest promises pointed in the days of Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To him, to Christ, every sacrifice pointed in the ceremonial worship appointed at Mount Sinai. He was the prophet like unto Moses, whom the Lord God promised to send, and the king of the house of David, who came to be David's Lord as well as son. He was the son of the virgin and the lamb, foretold by Isaiah, the righteous branch mentioned by Jeremiah, the true shepherd foreseen by Ezekiel, the messenger of the covenant promised by Malachi and the Messiah who, according to Daniel, was to be cut off. The further we read in the volume of the Old Testament, the clearer do we find the testimony about Christ. Philip joyously goes to Nathaniel and says, all that it's been pointing to is here. We see it. We now see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come to rescue. And it is that fulfillment of those promises about Jesus, looking toward Jesus, that now gives you and I such hope. Because we see the, the, that the word of God, as it looked forward for all of that time and is fulfilled in Jesus, the word of God is true. And, and so now when Jesus says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you, I will come back for you, I will establish a kingdom, and you will be with me in that kingdom, we can look at those promises with great hope. Just as Nathaniel saw the promises of the old pointing to Christ, so we see the promises of Christ pointing to the future. No, they will be fulfilled in Christ, and we have that hope. The Gospel of John, of all the New Testament books, has the most uses of the word fulfilled in the New Testament. John is wanting to make it absolutely clear that the Old Testament picture of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a perfect sacrifice is now being fulfilled before your eyes in Jesus Christ. It has been fulfilled. Jesus invites, he communes, he fulfills, and then fourth and last in this passage, he promises. Our Lord's conversation with Nathanael is, is really fascinating when you see the, the sort of the intrigue here that he puts forward to Nathanael. He shows Nathanael his supernatural power by saying, I saw you, I, I, I can identify a moment in your life from the very recent past where you had no idea that I saw you, and it wasn't because I was hiding at a distance. I saw you as God sees you. So testifying to his omniscience, to which Nathaniel's response is, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God." Look again at Jesus' answer then in verse 50. "Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these." And he said to him, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." Nathaniel is the first person in the Gospel of John to be acknowledged by Jesus as a believer. First person that that, um, Jesus recognizes for his belief. But then this pronouncement on Nathanael holds this incredible promise. Nathanael, and he says it in the strongest terms possible. Truly, truly, Nathanael, you've seen this? You will see greater things. I've got a promise for you, Nathanael, that there is so much more at this point. This is, if we were to put it in our colloquial terms, it is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry saying, you think this is something? You ain't seen nothing yet, Nathaniel. This is only the start. Just keep following after me and and, and wait to see what what comes ahead. There's an interesting shift in, in in the Greek here that goes from verse 50 to 51 that our English translations don't capture because they don't, hit plural pronouns all too well sometimes. In verse 50, it's a singular pronoun when he says, so because you saw me, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe you, singular, he's speaking to Nathaniel, will see greater things than these. He shifts in verse 51 and uses in the Greek a plural pronoun. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, plural pronoun would be like saying you all, y'all, you know, for those of you from the South, I say to you all, you all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is a m- remarkable statement, because while he's looking at Nathaniel and has said, I know you, you believe and you will see greater things, but listen to me, Nathaniel. You all, you all will see greater things. You will see heaven opened and the Son of Man ascending and descending, and, and, and this promise now is intended for a larger audience than one man. He's tying it back to, presumably, to to Jacob's vision in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob has run from Esau by deceit. He claimed the birthright from Isaac, and he is running. He's in the wilderness, and he's fleeing from Esau because he figures his brother Esau is going to kill him. And while he lays his head down at night and he's trying to find sleep, God gives him a vision. In Genesis 28, verse 12, it says, And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And God goes on from there, and he assures Jacob, and says, essentially, despite Jacob's deceit, Despite Jacob's fleeing, God is with him. And the promise that was made first to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac carries on through him, and God has not abandoned Jacob. And that is an assurance to Jacob that even though he is out in the wilderness fearing for his life, God has not left him alone. God continues to be present with him, and he gives him this vision that gives him a glimpse of heaven and the angels ascending and descending, protecting, caring for him, watching out him. God has not abandoned him. Jesus now in John 1 says, I am that ladder. I am that one who brings man to God, who now opens the way to heaven, who now takes what seems inaccessible to man, seems out of reach to man, and I now open that way to allow you to now come before God because of what Jesus Christ did. And that verb for opened in verse 51 is in the perfect tense, which means past time incident with ongoing results. And what he's saying is, I have opened heaven, and it stays. The the ongoing results of that are to benefit disciples of all time, of, of all those who follow after Jesus Christ. In a sense, I would say to you, John is starting his gospel with just a fabulous Preview of Coming Attractions. This is sort of his trailer, you know, that he runs at the beginning to, to entice us to read the rest. Because he wants us to be in awe of Jesus Christ. He wants us to start with saying, you know the one that Moses and the prophets foretold? It's him. The one that saw Nathaniel from a distance, that not from a distance, saw him omnisciently. You know, that's him. And, and that's only the beginning. We're just, we're just, that's just a little foretaste of all that's to come as you read on and begin to come to encounter Jesus Christ. The commentators, and frankly we for that matter, struggle with that verse 51 when it says, seeing heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man because it's, it's hard for us to grasp exactly what that means. But he is speaking to disciples of all ages and he is making a promise that what is ahead is far, far greater than what is behind. That everything that you've experienced in Christ to this point gets better. There is more that lies ahead for we who are walking with Christ and joined with Christ. Even though we don't always feel that way, and Monday doesn't always feel better than Sunday, the fact of the matter is, he is encouraging him by saying, there's so much more. There is so much more glory and greatness that awaits. Think of how you imagine that creation and at the end of that sixth day when God said it's all good, very good. And, and there is that perfect garden and, and it's, it's just this, everything is right. And then Adam and Eve sin and they are banished from it. And the longing that God has put in our heart is to return to that, to, to get back to the tree of life. Jesus Christ now is the one who has opened the way to an even greater paradise. Jesus Christ has opened the way to heaven and is offering to us abundant life and an eternity that will make this life pale in comparison. Let me leave you with one one thought from the Apostle John. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote the last book of the New Testament. He's the human author of the book of Revelation. From what we understand from what he says in Revelation and and what we know in church history at this point, John writes Revelation as as an exile. He has been kicked out to a lonely, desolate island named Patmos, and he is there, and John is apart from the fellowship of the saints, and and he is alone, and he is watching his life creep toward its end. And it is in that context that, that Jesus Christ kindly reveals to John what lies ahead. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, there's some some challenging parts in it. But as you come to those closing chapters, it is this look into this glorious eternity with this crystal-like river of life that he describes as flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And, and, And people are gathered, the saints of all time, are worshiping the Lamb. He says there's no need for a lamp or sun because the light of Jesus Christ illumines it all, and he is just reveling in what lies ahead, this place where Jesus Christ says he will wipe away every tear, where there's no sin or death or pain or sorrow or suffering. My friends, I, I really think that John, as he's starting this gospel, and and, and Jesus says to Thomas, You think that's something? There's so much more, Thomas, that lies ahead. Heaven's been opened. Thomas, uh, Nathaniel, I keep saying Thomas, Nathaniel. There's so much more. And he's speaking that to you and I as disciples of his. There is so much more that lies ahead. Amidst the, the, the chaos and the difficulty and the hardships and the pains and the trials of life, he wants us to keep knowing that this is not all there is. This can be abundant and be peace and, and have peace and joy, but understand we are living now for then when we will be in his presence, when we will be in that glory. I, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, I would just plead with you, and the terms that John does, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one who has opened heaven. You and I couldn't pry the door open if we tried. It is only by trusting in him, only by throwing ourselves at his mercy and his work on the cross that we are then forgiven. And all of that glory and greatness that is his, now he brings us into his own and makes us one of his. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to give his life on the cross in our place. We thank you that we who are undeserving sinners can partake in the glory and greatness of Christ because of his work on our behalf. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is, who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that today would be the days that you would open their eyes, that you would cause them to see that he is the Christ. He is the one you have sent and and, and stood in our place to take our punishment so that he might be the rescuer and the deliverer. Lord, as we set out on on the new week and whatever obstacles and challenges come along, Lord, continue to grip us with the promises that begin in John 1 that there are still greater things to come that our Savior has gone before an open paradise. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, for what lies ahead. Help us to live well today, looking ahead and worshiping and and contemplating that day when we are in your presence forevermore. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.